0: Hi there, and welcome back. I'm Megan, and my partner here is... Marta. And you're listening to Who Knew We Didn't. Uh, In fact, you're listening to the final installment of our Psychology of Sense and Perception series, which is our first series that we've ever done for this podcast so far.
1: Congratulations on getting through it, everyone. (laughs) Yes, yes. Muchos grat... What's the word? Gracias? Muchos
0: congratulations.
1: I don't know. Thank you and congratulations.
0: <laughs> Much congratulations is what I was trying to say, I think. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you for following along. Uh, so far, we have covered, um, oh, what have we done so far? Sight, sound, smell, and taste. And today we will be wrapping up with touch. and we'll also be talking about sense pathology, which is how your brain will compensate for a missing sense. Uh, and Marta here is going to talk about touch first, and then we'll wrap everything up with the uh, with the sense pathology. So, Marta, how do you feel? Do you want to just dive right in? Do you have any like initial, uh points or
1: questions or do you just want to go for it no i'm i'm ready i'm raring to go all right you do it you go for it (laughs) uh so touch last i know last week when i was talking about sense of taste i said taste is one of the most under underrated senses and yes we said that for smell and for taste (laughs) i think yeah and then this week when i was researching touch i was like oh shit It's actually touch. I think touch is the most underrated (laughs) sense. I was reading a National Geographic article and the first two lines were talking about how underrated it is and how if you ask someone to say, you know, what are the five senses? They say vision, hearing, taste, smell, and then they pause. They're like, oh, yeah, touch.
0: Yeah, it's definitely the last one that I will mention if I'm rhyming them off to somebody, yeah.
1: I think I think we've covered them so much by this point. I've said the five in order so many times that I will never forget any of them anymore. <laughs> um, Let's hope not. Yeah, and it's interesting that this is the most underrated sense because it's actually the first sense that develops in the womb. So uh, babies in the womb, between 8 to 14 weeks, they start to develop touch, um, and they actually also start to develop Reflexes based on touch. So, if you accidentally poke a baby with a needle when you're doing like um, any kind of extraction of like amniotic fluid, the baby will move away from that feeling, from that touch. Which That's is wild. Yeah, it's crazy. That's so wild. Yeah. And it's also interesting that it's underrated because our touch organ, our skin is the largest organ. Like, we're always getting touch information. That's
0: true.
1: So it's our largest and our heaviest organ. And we it's our first thing de- that develops. And we just keep ignoring it. But it's it. our most ignored. Yeah. yeah. Our, wow. skin- <laughs> our skin's like, notice me.
0: <laughs> um, and Your skin's got like FOMO.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention. Um, <laughs> so... So skin, uh, you have to kind of understand the skin before you can start thinking about touch. Uh, One of the things that I found that was really interesting about skin is that the part of your skin that makes you waterproof is actually mostly dead skin cells, which is weird. So we Hmm. rely on the fallen soldiers of our skin cells (laughs) to keep us waterproof. Um, Also, so that's part of the epidermis, the external layer, like the outermost layer. Um, In the epidermis, we also have a bunch of touch receptors, so a bunch of those sensitive cells. Uh, The second layer of your skin is your dermis. Uh, You have hair follicles, sweat glands, blood vessels, nerve endings, and also, again, more touch receptors. And the primary focus of the dermis is to sustain the epidermis with nutrients, so to deliver blood and new cells to the epidermis so that it can keep doing what it's doing. Hmm. Uh, And then the third layer is subcutaneous tissue. So that's fat and connective tissue. So fats are insulator. It's the thing keeping everything inside safe. So when when I was researching touch, it's actually interesting that we don't know everything there is to know about touch. Uh, Not even close. It's one of the lesser researched areas of sensation, which goes right along with the fact that Nobody ever remembers touch. Nobody researches it either. Um, well, that's probably a lie. There's probably like a whole lab of researchers. Yeah, I'm somewhere. sure there's lots of people who research <laughs> it. It's just
0: maybe not as maybe not as well known to the rest of us, I yeah, guess.
1: Yeah, there's like a whole lab of researchers like, damn it, Marta, you idiot. Um, We're doing this right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you take certain like neuro... Um, Nervous disorders, like nerve disorders, like fibromyalgia, which is where somebody's feeling pain constantly all over. And we don't really know what's causing it. So we don't really know how to stop it or how to make it stop, which is crazy. Um, Yeah, that's wild. Wow. Yeah. And touch is part of the somatosensory system. So this is a huge network of nerve endings and touch receptors all throughout your body. Um, and there are two general classes of s- receptors, and those are rapid adapting and slowly adapting. So rapid adapting, respond to touch immediately, but they can't sense continuation. Like if somebody punches you real quick or slaps you, that's a rapid adapting receptor. Uh, slowly adapting is not immediate, and it can't tell when a sensation started or ended really, but it's really good at sensing a continuation. So if somebody's shoving you consistently or somebody's pushing you um, if you have a constant pressure on you that's a slowly adapting sensor or receptor hmm so it's kind of exactly they're they're aptly named is what you're telling me yes yes i don't know if there are more (laughs) scientific terms but the article that i found said they're called rapidly and slowly which I'm very all grateful right. for.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very easy to understand of all of the words and terms that we've come
1: across yeah. in uh, in our research. That's great. There's some words that... Thanks, guys. Yeah, really. Uh, these two classes of receptors exist across all types of receptors. So there are four different like groupings of types of receptors. Um, and those respond to... Uh, you have like... Pressure receptors, temperature receptors, uh, pain receptors, and uh, prior receptors, which I'll go into the explanation when we get there. Starting off with pressure, they're called mechanoreceptors, so they sense mechanic things. Um, and these are responsible for, of course, pressure, but also vibrations and texture, such as itching and tickling. Uh, and what's also interesting is we don't know the science behind itching, really. Uh, we don't know what causes an itch. We don't know why scratching it relieves an itch. Uh, there's not a whole lot of research that's very firmly backed in itching and tickling. And also, the do, we know, do we know about tickling or is it only itching that we're, we're curious about? You know, the article that I read this only mentioned that we don't know about itching. Uh, tickling, there is some information, but because this was like, I never even thought of that, but now I'm like, oh, I
0: wonder why some people are ticklish and other people are not, or like why some people are ticklish in certain areas, but other people are not.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, from what I read, it said that it's mostly a mental thing. So the receptors are just as sensitive across all people, but it's mostly a, a neurological thing. That's the difference between tickling and not being huh. ticklish.
0: Yeah. Yeah um so like if we just you can think your way out of being ticklish
1: is that what you're telling me yes and honestly it's true it's true (laughs) I'm gonna try that next time you can totally think your way out of tickling um huh and like it's the same thing because then if it was all about the sensors and it wasn't neurological then you'd be able to tickle yourself but you can't because your hand knows that you're the one doing it that's crazy I've never thought of that yeah, sorry, um, I didn't mean to like distract no. you like that. No, but that's but cool. <laughs> it is cool. Um, Mechanoreceptors—you have two different. Well, there are mechanoreceptors that are super sensitive, and then ones that are less sensitive. The ones that are super sensitive are found uh, mostly on non-hairy skin, like your fingertips, your eyelids, the bottoms of your feet. Um, inside those little elbow crevices. Um, That's where your more sensitive ones are. And the less sensitive ones are typically found on hairy skin, Uh, but they're also found internally. So along your joints, your tendons and muscles. Uh, And these are used to feel sensations such as vibrations in your bones and tendons, also rotational movement of the limbs and the stretching of your skin. So like how you move yeah, it has to do with these internal mechanoreceptors, which is cool. That's
0: very cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, beyond that, we also need to t- feel temperature. So those are thermoreceptors. So it's actually a different type of receptor. Um, and you have hot receptors and you have cold receptors, which is interesting. Because originally, I thought it was just one type of temperature receptor. But no, there's actually two. There's ones that respond to cold and send, I'm cold feelings, and there's ones that respond to heat and send I'm hot feelings. Huh. Uh, cold receptors start to feel, like start to be activated when the skin drops below 35 degrees Celsius. They're the most stimulated at 25 degrees Celsius and turn off at 5 degrees Celsius. So this is why your hands and feet go numb in icy water, because the surface of your skin has dropped below 5 degrees Whoa! Mm -hmm. And cold receptors, you actually have more of them. They're found in greater density than heat receptors. Uh, And hot receptors, you start to feel, or they start to activate when your skin goes above 30 degrees Celsius. They're most stimulated at 45. But beyond that, your pain receptors take over to avoid damage to the skin and your underlying tissue. Uh, Whoa, that's wild. (laughs) Yeah, so your body's like... Your pain receptors come in, they're like, okay, obviously, heat receptors, you're not doing what you need to do. It's like a tripwire. Yeah, I need to inform this human that they're about to damage their body. Wow. So pain receptors take over. That's really cool. Yeah. And if you notice those temperatures that I was reading, there's an overlap between heat receptors and cold receptors.
0: Yeah, I I didn't mention it, but I did notice that.
1: Yeah, so when you're comfortable, it's actually both of your receptors are activated, I'm pretty sure. They're working together to say, you're fine. This is just right. Yeah, this is just right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The next receptor, the one for pain, this is actually a Latin word that would be very difficult to glean what it means. Uh, (laughs) It's noci receptor, noci receptor or something like that. It's N-O-C-I receptor. Um, The Latin word noci, no see no key i don't know how to pronounce it uh it means injurious or hurt um injurious wow. is also not a word in my dictionary but according to this page it was
0: so that's all right i'm sure it's i'm sure it's a word in other people's dictionaries yeah. or in like a like an actually published dictionary
1: yeah Ooh, actually before <laughs> we get into pain mm, i had another fact that i wanted to say about cold can you guess Go for it. where we have the most cold receptors What did you just say? Can you guess where you have the most cold receptors? The most cold receptors? um, uh, uh, Your face? Yeah, your face and your ears. That's why your face and ears get cold first, because you have the most receptors. I was going to say,
0: I'm like trying to think, yeah, my my cheeks, for sure,
1: my cheeks and my ears, of course, that's what would get cold first. Yeah, it's really... um, Apparently I needed to interrupt myself to give you guys that <laughs> that piece of information <laughs> Going back into pain um, there are over three million pain receptors throughout the body and they're also found everywhere so skin bones muscles and even some organs have pain receptors which is interesting because organs don't tend to have uh, motion receptors and that sort of thing so or like pressure receptors so the fact that they have pain receptors is really interesting mm-hmm Um, where am I? Oh, and the pain receptors, there are different types of stimuli that can activate them. So there's mechanical stimuli can activate them. So for example, if you get punched or something. Um, mm-hmm. and it's supposed to hurt thermal stimuli so that's where your pain receptors take over that hot sensation but also chemical stimuli so if there's a poison in your body your pain receptors can be activated and you feel pain where that poison is hmm. which is which I thought was really cool because I didn't even yeah. think of touch as something chemical
0: oh yeah I honestly didn't even really think of touch as being something internal, if I'm honest with you, but of course it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you need that sense, like you need the sense of motion, and et cetera, in order to function in your daily life, like to know where your limbs are and to know that your feet are hitting the ground. And it's interesting that we bring this up because the next receptor is called Uh Proprius in Latin means one's own. So this is the sense of the different parts This is the sense of the position of the different parts of the body in relation to each other and to the surrounding environment. So this is how you know when you're laying in bed that your fingers are where your fingers are and that your feet are where your feet are supposed to be. Or when you're putting on your shirt that your arms are going up and above your head. That's these receptors. Would these receptors also be responsible for like your sense of, of balance? Yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting is sense of balance is also, um, this was something that I was going to say at the beginning, but I skipped it, but I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sense of balance is is part of your sensory system, uh, and it involves your vestibular system, which is actually, if you guys remember from the hearing episode, it's part of your ear that is responsible yeah. for balance and equilibrium. Uh, so there are three fluid-filled in your ears they're called semicircular canals and as your head mm-hmm. moves the fluid in these canals moves too so and, oh, yeah that just like made my stomach churn a little bit but <laughs> that's cool and when the fluid moves you have little hairs in that fluid and it causes mm. those hairs to move and so that's what sends signals to your body like the hairs are moving this way we're tilting this way
0: oh that's crazy yeah It's making me like a little bit dizzy to talk about this, but
1: (laughs) 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 Um, my mind is certainly just playing tricks on me right now. Yeah. A little bit more into pain um, is that researchers, again, don't completely understand the mechanics of pain, but the process of the injured part of the body and the process of the brain play a role. So you can be injured, uh, but your brain could not allow that stimulus. Like if you're hurt, but you're in shock as well, your brain could stop that and say, okay, who cares about the pain right now? We need to survive first or whatever. Um, Or your brain can actually make you feel the pain more. So um, if you have like a small paper cut, but you don't notice it, you don't feel the pain. But if you're focusing on the paper cut and looking at the blood, then you feel the pain. That's why parents always try to distract kids away from their (laughs) Uh boo-boos. Yeah, because if the kids aren't looking at it or aren't paying attention to it, they actually feel the pain less. Huh. Which is interesting. That's Um, wild. Yeah, there's a gate control theory to pain. So it's not actually proven. This is just an idea of how maybe pain works in the body. Um, In the 1960s, two researchers, Ronald Melzack, damn it, Ronald with a difficult name, (laughs) uh, and Patrick Wall suggested that pain signals from your body to the brain must go through a gate in your spinal cord. Uh, The gate isn't a physical structure or anything, but it's a pattern of neural activity that either stops pain signals or allows them to pass. So, it's actually your brain that controls this gate uh, and it focuses. And then it says here, for example, focusing on pain tends to increase it, ignoring it tends to decrease it because your brain can control what comes in or out, which is interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, Also, in pain and kind of linking into your area, Megan, is uh, there's this. Uh, pathology, there's a con- congenital insensitivity to pain, um, also known as congenital analgesia. So, this is a pretty rare condition, but it's where a person can't feel or has never felt physical pain. Um, wow. Yeah. There's a sentence here that says that it's common for people with this condition to die in childhood due to injuries or illnesses going unnoticed because they can't feel if they have a fever or they can't feel like it's pain. And I think, I think it's also temperature, but I'm not sure. Um, But these people tend to get burns more often because they can't, they don't notice. Yeah. They don't don't realize
0: exactly. That's um,
1: exactly like that
0: episode of either house or Grey's anatomy. We couldn't decide (laughs) which one it was that we talked about um, last time. And, and that is exactly what was happening. This girl thought she, she, thought she was a superhero because she couldn't feel pain but she was actually like bleeding internally and had like all kinds of massive bruises and shit and it was like yeah she was she was putting herself in like really grave danger without realizing it because she just could not
1: feel it oh yeah yeah we did talk about that last episode we need to figure out which show it was
0: Yeah, I really think it was Grey's Anatomy because I'm remembering the one guy whose name I don't remember, but I remember Garif. he like, I, I don't know, the McDreamy. hot one. McDreamy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not McDreamy. The other hot one. They're um, all hot. What am I talking about? They're on TV. Um, They're all hot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how they got the job in some ways. Um, anyway, uh, one of them like developed a, a friendship with the little girl and was like very concerned about her and that she wouldn't like listen to them. And I remember his face and it was, it was Grey's Anatomy.
1: Okay. 99% sure. Uh, Mystery solved then. (laughs) Mystery mostly solved. Yes. There's uh, with regards to this, this issue, this um, I guess illness, there's an idea that it could be caused by an increased production of endorphins in the brain. Um, And so Doctors have tried using naloxone, which lowers the amount of endorphins in your brain as treatment. Uh, it doesn't always work, but it has worked on this one woman where they administered naloxone. She's had this disorder, so she hasn't been able to feel pain. They administered like treatment of naloxone, and for the first time, she felt pain, which is wow. interesting, which begs the question, if you had the choice, would you feel pain? I don't know. I don't want to go into that um, right now. <laughs> I don't know. I,
0: I I feel like pain is in a lot of ways. It's like uh, it's like physical stress, right? So it, it is giving your body and yourself a cue that like you need to be careful, or you need to stop what you're doing, or like there's some level of um, danger or concern around this. Like it's. I think it's an important thing for us to have awareness of. So I would probably choose to feel pain, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. Also, like, I think your body has many ways that it can harm itself, like overextending a joint or something and pain stops you from doing that.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Uh, Moving on to, I'm just going to keep powering through because I forgot to turn on my timer and I don't know how long this episode's (laughs) going to be. (laughs) Um, There was a study that used women to sense two different types of material like two different types of sandpaper with their fingertips um, and they were able to tell a really really minuscule difference between the two I think it's like 12 nanometers or 13 nanometers which is about the thickness of a human hair so people are actually really really sensitive to touch um, and women are slightly better at detecting touch than men which is um, so these studies were specifically done using women yeah Wow. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, Go, ladies. Yeah, go, ladies. Um, I have three more things that I wanted to talk about. There's this really cool visualization of how your brain or where your brain processes touch. Uh, It's called the cortical homonucleus. Um, There's one for uh, senses and there's one for motor control. And what this means is in your uh, cerebral cerebellar cortex... That's where your body processes this information on touch. So motion, movement, that sort of thing, and also the senses, like you feel pressure, that sort of thing. What they found when they were doing like MRI imaging, like when they put the person into one of those big um, those big machines that actually reads yes. the brain and reads what part is being activated, what part is getting more blood. Um, they told this person, these people like, raise your eyebrows, open your mouth, move your fingers, wiggle your toes, that sort of thing. And different areas of that cortex light up and it's actually, they mapped it out. Um, so different areas have more representation or less representation. And they took this map of the brain based on the representation and created these like little men, like men's sculptures and like both of the little men's sculptures both for the model uh motor and sensory model they both have humongous hands because in our brains we have a lot of space dedicated to our hands they have huge mouths and tongues because in our brain we have a lot of space dedicated to our mouths and our tongues they have these scrawny little arms um pretty big heads in general like these big neanderthal like eyebrows small ears small torso, small legs, big ish feet, but the hands are just like gargantuanly large. And it's interesting. Yeah. It's a representation of how much space is dedicated in your brain to those areas of your body. That's so cool. Yeah, and it actually. I want
0: like a little model of that. They're so cool. (laughs) Like for my desk. That's awesome. That's so cool.
1: Yeah, if you guys get the chance, just Google cortical, C O R T I C A L, homonucleus, H O M O N U C L E O U S. Um, And this is a little map of it'll either show you the map of the brain so it will show you like a side profile of the brain and all of the limbs and parts of your body mapped out onto it which is one really cool two helped me study for my neuropsych tests (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then two it might show you that little sculpture the two little sculptures of the men the two final things that i wanted to tell you guys is uh experiments types of experiments that you can do on your friends to see your different touch um touch sensors in action so one is an experiment where you can take two toothpicks um, and then you can place them in different parts of the body so there's you can use the cheek the back the upper arm the palm of the hand um take your friend and blindfold them and on the cheek place the two toothpicks really really close together like one millimeter and then place them really far apart 10 millimeters see and then anything in between it see how far apart the two toothpicks have to be in order for your friend to sense that there are two toothpicks rather than one um, cool yeah and when you do this on the cheek versus the back versus the palm of the hand you'll notice that different areas of the body have different concentrations of pressure receptors so really highly sensitive areas such as your tongue or your fingertips can sense two different points even when they're side by side, but less sensitive areas such as your back. Um, they need a much bigger difference between the two points in order to tell that they're two points. Um, cool. And then I think, I think like Bill Nye did the second experiment uh, it, where you have three glasses of water. One is pretty dang hot, like as hot as you can handle. One's really cold, like ice water. And another one is room temperature. Uh, hold one hot, In one hand, hold the hot glass and the other hold the really cold glass. Um, There's a certain amount of time that you're supposed to hold it for. I didn't write it down, so I can't remember. But then put down those glasses and hold the room temperature glass and try to figure out what temperature it is this will actually send mixed results to your brain and so it will be really hard to tell what temperature that middle glass is to the hand that was holding the cold glass that middle glass is warm to the hand that was holding the hot glass that middle glass is cold Uh, and that's because of how your body is handling the difference so you're actually your skin is senses relative temperature this is why entering a body of water such as a pool or lake seems really cold at first but then it gradually warms up because your body gets used to it the same principle is going when you're holding the glasses in the glass experiment
0: cool i have one more oh yeah unless yeah i have one more i don't know like what it is supposed to test or whatever but it feels cool so do it um (laughs) you need two people um so basically like you you press hands with uh with one of your friends so like like if you have your left hand up have them hold up their right hand and put your palms together and like your fingers all together and then um one of you whichever one of you doesn't know this trick <laughs> um get them to hold their their thumb and their forefinger. Uh, put their thumb on their middle finger, the base of their middle finger, and put the tip of their forefinger on the base of your middle finger and rub it up and down. And it's if, what happens is it tricks your brain because your finger feels another finger and thinks it should be your finger, but there's huh. somebody else's finger there. Huh. And so you, it's a weird thing where you're, you're the finger you're touching on the hand you're holding up it feels that it's it's only being rubbed on the one side but your other finger the one that's doing the rubbing is confused because it is also rubbing a finger
1: huh that is confusing
0: all probably sounded like super dirty in in some (laughs) weird ways but um it's a it's a really cool thing it it, it's it's fun you'll it'll freak you
1: out huh i will definitely try that as soon as i have somebody who's like Who answers yes to, hey, do you want to rub fingers?
0: (laughs) Yeah, you have to find somebody who will say yes to that. But it's cool. You don't even have to necessarily tell them that. Just like make them give you your palm and then do it for them. Somebody, I didn't have anything going into it. I didn't have any prior knowledge that I was going to be rubbing fingers with somebody. But like somebody kind of forced me to go through um, the motions and I was pleasantly surprised. So it's cool.
1: huh? Very cool. We'll definitely try. Yeah,
0: it's a way to trick your brain's um, I, I, touch receptors. I don't even know. It just like tricks your brain Both. into thinking something is is you're touching something that you're not.
1: Huh. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so sorry to I, interrupt you. No, no, no problem. <laughs> you didn't interrupt. I was actually done my section. So, oh, the floor is that's, all yours. That's, that's touch. Yep. That's touch.
0: All right. Well, I'm touched. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad pun. Um, okay, well, I guess I will get into pathology now. So, uh, thank you, Marta. Um, so we've we've now covered all of the senses and how your brain deals with them. So, so now we're going to talk a little bit about how your brain deals with it when it is missing one of those senses. Um, as as Many listeners probably know already the most common senses to lose or be born without are sight and hearing. Um, You can certainly lose your sense of smell, taste, or touch, but they're much less common um, when you compare them to sight and hearing. Um, People really have been curious about whether or not individuals who are missing a sense, like particularly sight um, or hearing, but uh, have always been curious about whether or not those individuals compensate for their lack of sight or hearing by developing heightened abilities with the remaining senses. Like that's been going on for, for ages,
1: Um, but it really, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. How daredevil is blind, but he's like a martial artist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Or just like, honestly, like even in olden times, like if there was a, a blind person or a deaf person, like you, it might be part of just like, not understanding what it feels like to not have that sense. And so you're just sort of... Um uh, amazed at, at a blind person's ability to navigate, for example, when they can't see, because you can't imagine what it would be like to navigate when you can't see. But it, it has been fascinating people for ages. Um, and it wasn't really until the early 1990s that science could begin confirming these sorts of suspicions of a heightened sense through the use of neural imaging tools. So I'm going to talk a little bit about neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is your brain's ability to basically change at any age. Um, When we're first born, your brain is still developing. And so a lot of the processing power for all of your senses are combined when we're very young. Um, And as we grow older, our senses begin to be controlled by the separate independent areas of the brain that are designed to manage the processing of those, those senses, like the olfactory bulb in the limbic system for for smell, for example. But our brains do have a great deal of plasticity and can change later in life as well. So for example, um, brains of infants who are born blind have shown to essentially team up the visual and auditory cortexes to heighten the sensitivity of hearing when the individual is blind.
1: The baby brain is so freaking cool. <laughs> that it is that it is like um, what your brain can do sorry i'm interrupting no but no go for it i'm sure i'm sure we'll get to this in later episodes but what the brain can do as a child or like in order to adapt for things I'm sure you're about to get into it, is really freaking cool.
0: <laughs> it is really cool, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with um, vision loss. I want to talk about a study that I found um, in my research that I just thought was was really fascinating. So um, it was conducted by the UCLA Department of Neurology, and they confirmed that blindness does actually cause structural changes in the brain. So they conducted this study using an extremely sensitive type of, of brain imaging called tensor-based morphometry. I think that's how you say it, morphometry. Um, And this detects... I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded right, right? Yeah. Um, It detects very subtle changes in brain volume. So they conducted the study using three groups. Uh, The first group was individuals who lost their sight before age five. The second group was individuals who lost their sight after age 14. And finally, a control group of sighted individuals individuals. Hmm. So in this study, they were able to show that the brain basically reorganizes itself functionally to adapt to a loss of sensory input. Um, they found that the visual regions of the brain were smaller in volume in blind individuals than they than in sighted individuals. And for non-visual areas of the brain, these areas actually grew larger in
1: blind individuals. I think- and in a Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in addition, when they were comparing the two groups of blind individuals, so those who had lost, lost sight before age five and the other group that was after age 14, when comparing those two groups, researchers found that this loss and gain of brain matter depended heavily on when the blindness occurred. Um, But they also found that in both blind groups, uh, there was significant enlargement of areas of the brain that are not responsible for vision, like frontal lobes where the olfactory bulb is and the limbic system is. These areas were found to be abnormally enlarged. So this study really did show the exceptional plasticity of our brains and the brain's ability to rewire itself when a major input is missing or lost. Um, now, other studies have shown, um, even like uh, when, when studying blind individuals walking down a corridor with windows, um, blind individuals are adept at detecting where those windows are because they're able to feel subtle changes in temperature oh, so and cool. distinguish. I know. And they're also able to distinguish between auditory echoes caused by walls and windows so they have sonar it's yeah well not really but (laughs) kind of yeah like basically the the hearing section of their brain becomes larger takes on um the not sort of the space not really the space but like um it takes on what the visual areas your of your brain would do if they were um able to receive that input
1: with regards to the um the study about when you became blind and what happens to your brain i think in the vision episode i mentioned a study about cats they did this to cats they kept them uh yes they sewed their eyes shut which was really sad but they got very cool findings that expanded on this research from for neuroplasticity Wow. If you guys want to go back and take a listen. (laughs) Take a listen to that. Yeah.
0: Um, I I want to tell you about a movie as well. I was as I was researching this, I thought of this movie that I've loved since I was a kid. It's called Sneakers. Um, It stars Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix. Um, it's It's a kind of a cheesy sort of late night movie that would be on TV in a lot of ways, but it's also a really good uh, movie. Anyway, it's, it's uh, long story short, it's this, this group of individuals who sort of are, are investigating something together and they're sort of a conspiracy of sorts. Um, anyway, one of the guys on their team is blind and hmm. he's the tech guy on their team. And so he handles like all of their like bugging of phones and, and shit like that. Anyway, um, the main character, Robert Redford gets uh, like kind of kidnapped by, (laughs) by the, 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 people who are running the conspiracy that they're investigating, and he gets um, kidnapped and thrown in a trunk of a car and driven to a location where he learns all about the conspiracy and and basically proves everything that they thought was going on. And then, but he doesn't know where he was taken and they know that that's where they need to go. So when he finally makes it back to his team, he's sitting there and he's talking about everything and they're like, well, where were you? Like, what did you see? What what was there? And he, he can't remember it because he was in the trunk of a car. And the blind guy is like, well, what did it sound like? And he's like, I don't know what it sounded like. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It's, I was in the trunk of a car. What am I supposed to know? And he goes over to his like soundboard where he's got all of his tech equipment. And he starts playing different sounds of a car driving down a road huh. and what it like muffles it. So it would be similar to what it would sound like if you were in the trunk. And he's like, did it sound like like this? Were there any breaks in the pavement? And Robert Redford's like, uh yeah, yeah, some of them. And and so he starts putting in little blips like it was running over a bump in the pavement. He's like, did you go over any train tracks? And he's like, yeah, I, I did. And so he puts in the sound of a train track and basically this guy recreates the sound of his drive and leads him right to the building that he was taken to where all the conspiracy shit
1: is and they win. The magic of television, hey.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a cool movie if you're into like, early nineties detectivey coding type movies I am. Yeah. Yeah, It's good. (laughs) It's very good. It's funny. Dan Aykroyd's in it as well. It's a good, it's a good ensemble cast. It's actually, there's a lot of notable people. I'm pretty sure Ben Kingsley is in it. I think he plays the bad guy. Yeah. It's Ben (laughs) Kingsley. It's a, it's a good movie. I'll definitely add it to my list. (laughs) That's sneakers and that's vision loss. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing loss, uh, very similar, but another study uh, that I wanna mention This focused on hearing loss though, it was done at the University of Colorado's Department of Speech, Language and Hearing Loss. And they looked at how neuroplasticity plays a role in the brain's ability to adapt after hearing loss. Uh, So participants included both adults and children with varying degrees of hearing loss from mild to severe. And they used EEG recordings to measure brain activity in response to sound simulation. So the study found that areas of the brain devoted to other senses, again, they'll take over the areas of the brain that would normally be processing hearing. And this is called cross-modal cortical reorganization. And it basically means your, your brain's tendency to compensate for the loss of a missing sense. Sounds high yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> that reorganization and rewiring in the brain, that will occur at even mild levels of hearing loss. Hmm. And the study also showed that uh, the hearing areas of the brain actually become weaker during this reorganization. Why? How? How? I don't know, like basically like as you, it's it's hearing loss, right? So it would be somebody who was, was previously able to hear and then loses their hearing over time. As they lose their hearing over time, not only do other areas of the brain that are responsible for other senses, not only do those become larger, the area of the brain that was used for hearing uh, becomes smaller. Like I guess if you don't use it, you lose it.
1: I feel like we could again, link that to evolution like there are fish that live at the maybe. very bottom of the sea that don't that have eyes that don't work because they're like mm. well i can't see anyway so let's like why bother yeah let's stop giving energy to these eyes maybe maybe that like
0: boils it right down to it yeah huh that's cool it is cool, yeah. Um, now, so so that's vision and hearing. I was able to find, like, some cool information about that. Um, loss of smell, which is called anosmia, and loss of taste, which is called, I think you would pronounce it, agweesia, A- agweesia? A g u e s i a is how it's spelled, uh, but it's I, I don't know exactly how you say it. I'm not. Um, try. I didn't find. <laughs> I know. I didn't find a ton of evidence for missing smell and taste from birth. First of all, um, so like there you can find lots of evidence of someone being born blind or someone being born deaf. But in terms of finding cases where someone is born without the sense of smell or taste, I had a lot of trouble finding that not to say that it doesn't happen just to say that I wasn't able to find a lot of research around it. Hmm. Um, it seems to me like from what I was able to, to gather, uh, most of the research I found, uh, leads me to believe that a loss of smell or loss of taste more often occurs as a result of a traumatic brain injury, for example, as opposed to like a, a genetic predisposition to this. So, um, yeah. And, and it also seems to be much less common to be to, to um, be afflicted by a loss of smell or taste. Again, I may be wrong, just, just saying I was not able to find a, a ton of stuff about that. Um, but also as we talked about in the last episode where we looked at smell and taste specifically, the studies of those senses are much younger. So I was also wondering like, maybe, maybe that's why I wasn't able to find a whole lot. Um, like maybe the lack of evidence is really just because it's a much younger field of study than sight or hearing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah maybe yeah maybe also it's just a simpler sense so less can go wrong with it maybe or because it's a chemical sense
0: as opposed to sight or hearing like maybe that has some something to do with it although I was also having a lot of trouble finding information regarding a loss of touch so uh, and and I, I that's not a chemical sense completely so um yeah i'm not sure i i my my personal guess being not an expert uh (laughs) is that like the the fields of study are younger and so probably just what we know about it isn't as rich at this point yeah Um, let's accept that i take that yeah (laughs) but i did some find some things that are interesting to note um it doesn't seem like there's a lot of treatment options available for a lack of sense or a lack of taste. Um, so, for example, um, an individual who is struggling with visual vision loss or hearing loss, unless they're completely blind or deaf, there are some treatment options available, right? Like you can get hearing aids, you can wear glasses, there's other um, vision or audio treatments available, sometimes even surgery. Like you can get a. Uh, some individuals are eligible or, or appropriate to get a cochlear implant, for example. Although I don't think that all deaf individuals are, are eligible for that. I think you have to meet certain requirements. Like I, I think at a certain point of hearing loss, a cochlear would not work, uh, but I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert on that. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm trying to get to is for individuals who are missing their sense of taste or smell, it seems that there are really only a few practical ways to compensate for that kind of loss. So like ensure you always have a working smoke detector, make sure your appliance are, are regularly services, um, pardon me, serviced, especially a gas appliance because you would not smell a gas leak. Um, use alarms to remind you that you're cooking food, make sure that you use all your food by its best before date, um, take out the trash, you know, oh, w- regularly wash your bed lemons and your clothes and things like that. Um, brush and floss your teeth and visit your dentist regularly because you would not be able to smell or taste like issues in your mouth that might cause you to go to the dentist if you had like, like uh, problems with oral health or something like that. Um So what's, what I thought was interesting about this, these are all like very practical ways to deal with it, but none of these treatment options actually affect how your brain perceives the senses like glasses or hearing aids huh. would uh, affect your brain perceiving sight or sound
1: I never even thought of that like how to fix it if you don't have it
0: yeah well I know like like yeah it's crazy (laughs) I I had never really considered something like that before and to be honest I had never really considered a loss of smell or a loss of loss of touch or taste like it just it's not something that I thought about
1: Man, though I have thought about it. You know how I, I'm. I've oh, told really? You, well, I've told you about my goddamn dog keeps <laughs> farting off a storm. And I was like, if <laughs> I could. You did tell me. Uh, you did tell me about that. We'll be hanging out. Like she hangs out in my room when I'm working and she just farts. And sometimes she'll like look at me and then walk away and slow, noxious gas just comes and takes she over. She just rocks the crop dust and then takes off. Oh, man. So today earlier today she dropped another bomb and I was like if I could just turn off my sense of smell, that'd be great but (laughs) but yeah alas (laughs) that's
0: the only time I've thought of that well I I had never even like I don't know it just uh, it seems so obvious now that I've done the research like of course if if you can lose your sense of hearing or lose your sense of sight why couldn't you lose your sense sense of smell smell, taste or touch it just seems to be that um and again i may be wrong and if i am wrong please let us know by the way if if there's anybody listening who has more information or expertise on this it is really fascinating and i would love to know more but it seems to me that um losing your sense of smell taste or touch in a lot of cases um it's not necessarily like a genetic thing like something you're born with uh it seems more uh more commonly a result of brain injury trauma uh like a stroke or or like an infection as well um so it, it doesn't seem to be something that you're born without like like you can um be born without hearing or sight
1: one thing that you uh didn't mention you said injury trauma infection there's also just like degenerative disorders that we don't know about like yeah. illnesses so like multiple sclerosis or um Gillian Gulli- Barr syndrome these affect touch for example that's why I'm mentioning huh. it. yeah
0: so yeah like uh, and I, th- I, maybe that's a better way of saying it instead of just infection but yeah
1: like a a, a a disorder what did you call it a degenerative disorder is that what you said yeah there are some that affect your brain and like how your brain handles these senses and those are like neurodegenerative so like your brain starts to like fall apart <laughs> I don't know how better to say it well,
0: perhaps that's what I should have been researching. No, it's <laughs> hey, specific got, disorders. I've, yeah, I've
1: got some stuff too, when you're ready.
0: Um, actually, that's kind of what I had for sense pathology. I did also find some research on non-human senses that I thought might be fun to bring up. <laughs> but if you have more you want to add about about like how your brain would compensate for a missing sense, please go for it.
1: Yeah, I don't really have how your brain would compensate for like... Missing the physical sense, but I wanted to talk about agnosias or agnosia. So, it's uh, A-G-N-O-S-I-A. Uh, and this is the inability of your brain to process sensory information. So, it's not that there's actually a problem with the sensor. So, like, your nose has no problem, your eyes have no problem. They're getting that information, but they're not able to process it. And this, to me, Interesting. is stupid fascinating. So, um, there are different types of agno- agnosias, and they affect... Your different senses so for example uh there's speech agnosia so auditory agnosia is the difficulty to distinguish speech from non-speech sounds so just like we have an area of our brain for face detection we have a like a specific part of our brain that detects what is language and what isn't mm-hmm. so like if a if a bottle goes crashing to the ground you don't think that someone is talking to you um Unless you have this type of agnosia, so that's really cool. Um, so that's when somebody's crazy. talking, yeah, when somebody's talking to you, you can't tell it apart from music or something like that.
0: Uh, and then there's that's really fascinating. Yeah. So would that be like? Um, I, I, I'm just asking. I, I'm very. I had I had no idea. Would that be like if somebody was talking to you? you would not be able to understand the speech? Or is that like, if you are hearing
1: multiple sounds, it would distract you? Like, do you you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's, I think all of these exist. Um, I think that your brain, because it's so complex that it can screw up in so many ways. I think this one is that like, when somebody's talking to you, the area of your brain that's supposed to activate when somebody's talking doesn't, because you can't tell whether it's So flat out, you
0: just would not recognize
1: yeah you have you have a hard time distinguishing between the two so like somebody could crumple a piece of paper and you might think that it's somebody talking interesting yeah Or somebody
0: could be talking and you would think the opposite, that they were just crumpling
1: up a piece of paper. Exactly, exactly. Wow. Related to this is auditory verbal agnosia. So, this is also known as pure word deafness. So, it's difficulty to find semantic meaningfulness. So, you know that somebody's talking and you know that they're talking to you and you know this is speech, but you just can't connect these words or this speech that you're hearing to meaning. Mm. Yeah. So, you're like, okay, this is word, but none of it is ringing any bells. Uh, and this happens like, of course, again, through injury or stroke or whatever, or neurodegenerative disorder. But most often agnosias, different types of agnosias are like, well, they're always brain issues. But most often mm-hmm. they come from a trauma or injury. So not like a,
0: a genetic thing. Yeah. It's I d- like, well, it maybe not actually. Like if you had, I don't know. Now I'm, I'm creating more questions myself um are like neurodegenerative diseases genetic i'm I'm sure some of them
1: are i think there's like some evidence for alzheimer's being genetic or dementia being genetic but yes definitely um but yeah i'm not sure i don't know enough about it to speculate But moving Um, on listeners, if
0: any listeners know about that, that I would be fascinated to know that, or maybe we should, we should um, tack this as another topic to to discuss in the future, because I bet there's a wealth of information out there on this. What can you inherit?
1: Um, Yeah. Next up, we have visual agnosias. So the ones that I cover today aren't all of them, but they're the ones that I thought were interesting. So I pulled them out. Uh, In visual, there are so many freaking cool ones. There's so many ways that your brain can screw itself up. It's amazing. So echinotopsia is the inability to perceive motion. So you can't tell if something's moving or not. So you could see a horse run (laughs) past you and you can't tell. If it's a horse running past you or if it's just a picture of a horse. Oh, wow. A perceptive visual agnosia is the difficulty distinguishing shapes. Uh, You have trouble recognizing or copying or discriminating between visual stimuli. A really cool experiment that they did in this is they show somebody a square then they take the square away and they say draw a square and the person draws a circle or a triangle or a line because they just can't. Because they don't, they see it, the appropriate areas in their brain light up, but they can't connect it to the meaning square. They can't recreate that in their brain. Wow. Um, Yeah. Uh, there's prospognosia, which is the, probably the famous one. Uh, and that's where you can't recognize faces at all. So you look at someone, you can't recognize a face. Um, mm-hmm. and this is when you come into the, you come into the, uh, hospital room after somebody has had brain surgery and they're like, Hey, who are you nurse? Can I have my mom, please? And you're like, I am your mother. <laughs> <laughs> that's when that happens uh and also another interesting one for visual was social emotional agnosia so this is expressive agnosia so that means that you can't understand people's facial expressions or emotions on their face oh yeah wow so you're unable to perceive them um another another really cool disorder with vision is uh aphantasia and this is, it's not an agnosia per se. I don't think, I'm not sure. It, I didn't find it on the same page, um, but it's called it's called aphantasia because fantasia is Aristotle's name for the mind's eye. And so aphantasia is the lack of it. So it means no mind's eye. So this is where you can see things and recognize them as you see them. But if somebody told you, close your eyes and imagine a field with yellow flowers in it and imagine a blue sky you can't like you just don't have that's
0: that's crazy yeah like everything that you just said was pretty crazy to me but um i'm also just like a little stuck right now i had no idea that that's where the word fantasia came from
1: yeah fantasia burino from american idol her name is Mind's eye (laughs) Um, I
0: didn't think about her. I'm thinking about like Fantasia, the Disney movie and Fantasia too. And like, it, it's blown my mind a little bit. Um, my mind's
1: eye. Um, (laughs) and so uh, cool. This is really cool. Yeah. This is cool because there's different ways to study it as well. So there was an idea or like, there was a question whether or not you can think without images, without images. Can you think, can you have thoughts is the base basis of thought images well because aphantasia exists and people think with aphantasia we know that that's not true you don't need images to think so like that this is getting kind of philosophical like how does how does one think but we know that images aren't a required part of it um and the article where i found this was actually a woman who had aphantasia and she's like i've been born i've lived without it my whole life so i don't know what it's like but they did tests on a guy who was able to, who had a mind's eye, who was able to visualize things mentally. And then he they had studies on his brain after. um, And it was just really cool to see the different parts of the brain that lit up. Because when you imagine things with your eyes closed, your visual cortex actually lights up. It's, you can tell your brain that you're seeing something, basically. But this guy, he couldn't with his eyes closed. Um, And yeah, so this was a guy who had, mental imagery but then he lost it after surgery um and yeah there's different tests that they can do on these people like mental uh imaging tasks like oh imagine this cardboard box flipped over what would it look like and they use different parts of their brain in order to complete those tasks um and then finally back to agnosia and these are my last two things touch agnosia so there's Astereognosis, stereognosis, which is the in- inability to recognize objects uh, based on texture and weight. So if you're holding something, you can't recognize it. Like if you're holding a cardboard box and your eyes are closed, you can't recognize what it is. You need to see it as well. Or if you're holding like a cucumber. Wow. Yeah. Uh, You can't recognize it with your eyes closed. And then there's something really interesting, finger agnosia. So it's the inability to distinguish your fingers on your hand. So you can't tell what your pinky is touching versus what your thumb is touching. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So it's like your hand is one clump. (laughs) (laughs) That's wild. Yeah, agnosias are really freaking cool. So you have the senses, Ah. but your brain just doesn't know what to do with them that's
0: really really cool so it's not um, basically that whole area is the sense is there but the perception is not like the the what your brain does with the stimuli is
1: wrong yeah or not there yeah so they're not like sensation problems they're perception problems which brings wow. us full circle to the difference between sensation and perception yeah look at us go <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: that was a nice little bow that you just did there. Um, (laughs) Wow, that's
1: really cool, Marta. Thank you. Thanks, I invented them all myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just like excited by it. That's really cool. That's that's fascinating. Um, Wow, well, I don't know. Like I I have some notes about non-human senses. I don't know that they're really applicable here. I really like how... um, how you wrapped that up with agnosia. Um, Do you want to hear about them or uh, shall we, shall we wrap up?
1: I think we're going a little bit over on time. So I think so as well. Yeah. Listeners, if you want to hear the non-human senses, tell us and we will make a whole other episode.
0: They're, they're, they're not human. So they won't be about our brains, but they will be about the brains of other animals and plants actually. Um, Yeah. But in terms of our brains as you can tell they're pretty crazy and surprisingly adaptable but also incredibly fat fragile um maybe that shouldn't be as as surprising as it is to me but um yeah quite something i i i think that probably does wrap things up i think that concludes our our sense and perception series and to everyone listening Thank you for listening and we hope that you enjoyed it and, and learned something. I certainly learned quite a lot of things I did not know. I've been quoting like <laughs> um, research for the last week or two. Did you know this? Did you know that? It's, uh, um, yeah. To anyone who will listen to me, to be honest. Um, <laughs> hopefully there are people listening to this podcast who enjoyed it as well. Um, anyway, uh, for, for anyone listening, if you have anything to add about what we've talked about or, or like feedback or corrections for us, um, anything please let us know like we completely understand that the research that we did while it was enlightening to both of us um there there are you know countless people in the world who know so 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 much more so if you're one of them Please share it. Um, you can email us at who knew we didn't at gmail dot com. We would love to hear from you. Um, so yeah, thank you again, anyone tuning in, and uh, thank you for joining our conversation. And don't forget, if you enjoyed the podcast, or even if you did not enjoy the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> share it, subscribe it, tell your friends, your family, all about it, um, and be sure to tune in next time when we explore a new topic. Yeah. See ya. Yeah, because we're, <laughs> we're done with this one.
1: <laughs> See you guys. Bye.